Hello and welcome to the History with Jackson podcast presented by Past and Present Media. This episode of History of Jackson was sponsored by the Bean Around Coffee. Bean Around Coffee is based in Peterborough and they sell and make some amazing coffee. You can head to their website to buy some coffee beans or some coffee grounds. Now they make some fantastic coffee and it is my favourite coffee in the country. And for you want to grab yourself some coffee, head to www.thebeanaround.com and use discount code HWJ and the bear. 10 for 10% off all your purchases. I'll leave the discount code and the website in the description below. Right, today guys, we are speaking about Napoleon's secret police and other policing mechanisms with historian and author Michael G. Stroud. Now, Michael and I have been discussing for a long time on various different social medias, but we finally had the chance to sit down and discuss some of his work. So how are you doing, Michael? Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. No, no worries. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. So I'm really looking forward to diving into some of this work that you've got done on Napoleon and looking at secret police, which ties in some of my my specialisms as well. So I, I, firstly, I want to I want to ask you the question: Is you know how did you initially get interested in learning about Napoleon and his secret police? Well, that actually by itself is pretty big. <laughs> uh, now, the Napoleon interest I would say really started at a very young age, and it all stemmed from um boy i had to be under the age of 10. i, I stumbled, stumbled across a book in our local library it had to do with the uniforms of world armies and i saw the imperial guard the uniform of the imperial guard and that, as a kid i just what is that all of this about and that really was the impetus for me to dig in to learn more about who napoleon was what was the army about and, and all of that and really that led me to the great historian David Chandler, the preeminent Napoleonic historian. And I've basically acquired every book he ever wrote on Napoleon over the years. And my library is packed with all of his. And that really facilitated a, a, a deep interest in, in Napoleon, his methodology, and his processes. I even was fortunate enough to travel to France a number of years back to go to his tomb. And um, that was like a pilgrimage of sorts, I guess we'll say, to actually go there, be in the presence of those things. <laughs> um, as for the policing aspect, I actually served in our local police department for eight years as a reserve police officer. We were, um, so I, I did that third shift after my other uh, job, my full-time job, I did that in addition. So I did that for eight years. So kind of combining the two loves of giving back to my community, helping to protect and serve others, as well as my passion of history, just kind of like, and that really sparked an interest because I really never came across a lot of that information directly. It would be, it would indirectly speak of things, but I was like, I want to learn a little more for myself. So that kind of opened the door for me to kind of dig into how was Napoleon's policing philosophy and what were the mechanisms and how did that even occur? And that kind of led me down that path to research this on my own. And it's it's really fascinating how you've managed to pull together different parts of your life from various different years and and, and pull it in together into into some fascinating research on an area that you know we don't typically tend to look at. Yeah. Now, 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 some of our some of our uh, listeners might not be aware of who Napoleon Bonaparte was, 
So can you can you tell us you know who Napoleon was and what type of ruler he was? Sure. Uh, these questions are great because they're very broad, and I have to challenge myself to shrink them down. <laughs> Because we could spend a long time just on him. Oh, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So Napoleon was actually not French born. He was Corsican born. And actually, for many years, they were more akin to the Italian philosophies of a lot of their upbringing. He was a minor noble family. Um, they actually spelled their name the Italian way for a long time. So, um, and they were very much about Corsican independence. But as he, as the winds of change blew, as they say, and it became uh, evident that uh, siding with France and becoming more French was the way to go for his own career early on, and his parents were very aware of that, they actually changed the spelling of the name to fit more the French way of how it's spelt. Um, and Napoleon was able to se secure um, um, attendance at military academies, but ironically, he was looked down upon because he wasn't as prim and proper as the other French aristocracy. They thought his French was terrible, actually. Um, so it was quite interesting. But, uh, you know, a little bit of insight as to how you could tell that he was destined for things bigger than himself was early on in one of his academy days during the winter months. He was such a, um, an organizer already at a young age that he basically assembled a cadre of cadets and formulated snowball fights and would beat every upperclassman group with his groups. He made them in the troops at an early age and was able to beat every other group as an underclassman. So that really earned him the ire and the admiration of others early on. So I think that was a precursor of what he was going to bring about for France. But Napoleon ended up rising through the ranks and honestly having a lot of being at the right place at the right time all kind of fit perfectly into his personal ambition. He was extremely ambitious. He knew that where he wanted to go in the aspect of, I, I am good for France, France will be good for me kind of philosophy. And um, after saving the um, directorate during the uh, revolution, and he basically became the hero of the revolution, he was able to be, then become first counsel and move his way up into the hierarchy and ironically there's been a lot of debate over the years was he's the savior of the revolution or the villain of the revolution in the aspect of life liberty all those tenets of the revolution itself but as he became more powerful he consolidated more power onto himself becoming emperor eventually of the first french empire so there's a lot of uh dual dual edge sword approach with no napoleon that he loved his country, but in the same breath, he's quoted as besmirching his own troops. But then he bestowed accolades and medals on them while deriding them in another breath. So there's a lot of interesting dynamics with him as a person. But I think that's the key is that yeah. he was a man. He was a man first and foremost with his faults, his, his fallacies, but he also had passion. He had drive and he had a prodigious intellect. Um, and I think you have to always take that in its totality for who he was. He was a faulted person, absolutely, but he brought a lot of immense positiveness to France and Europe as a whole. With Code Napoleon, he established a, a, the predominant policing force, which we're going to speak to, that really became the benchmark for Europe as a whole and how to police 
and how to establish security within your country itself. So I think there's a, he's just very dynamic and there's a lot of layers to peel back and to look at. And, and the historiography has changed a lot over the years and, you know, and there's different perspectives, but I think in the end, you have to look at the totality of all of it, both good and bad in the context of the time. He was very much a product of his time too. He knew how to take advantage of things and he knew what his strengths were. Um, and he knew how to maximize the situation at hand. He he certainly sounds like a very interesting character, and I, I like the point that you bring out that he was he was a man. I think we tend to tend to definitely neglect those points when we look at historic leaders, uh, regardless yeah. of what century they're from. And and certainly uh, as an Englishman, we we ha we have a, perhaps a more negative uh, view of Napoleon, uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, is very interesting character. Now, to, to, firstly, to understand his methodology of, of policing, his philosophy behind policing, we need to understand the the order and the ideas between uh, behind how law and order was maintained before Napoleon. So how was it maintained before him? Yeah, uh, po policing before Napoleon from the Bourbon monarchy and the aristocracy before him was very much relegated to the royalist, the king, his direct cadre, um, his um, acolytes, if you will. Law and order is really maintained, and I'm going to apologize to all my French friends because my French is horrible, but the Marochasse were basically the ancient re regime, were basically like the uniformed cadre of police, but they only really served the king. So they were the, the Bourbon monarchy's personal guard of anything and they would basically were tasked with just securing the main roads in and out of paris securing the roads and travels of the king or his consorts and all his direct um um political um, affiliates and they would rarely go out to the countryside so what did that mean the average french person was relegated to brigandage thieves robbers the countryside was kind of the wild west if you will so other than when the king occasionally would send a cadre of them out to kind of bring things back down, if they were really out of control and he had a big uproar, they just basically stayed around Paris and the main thoroughfares. So really law and order was only pertained to the king pretty much in Paris itself for the most part. Lawlessness and everything was rampant throughout the countryside. So it was kind of taking your life in your own hands as you traveled from town to town at the time. Uh, and and certainly the the control of the king of France is something that's very interesting and and looking at power power within France is a very interesting theme. Um, but you know when we're looking at secret police, it's not a new phenomenon. Uh, and looking at the king's cadre, as you just said, you know these secret police have been around for centuries. So when did when did a form emerge in France? And what was you know we've touched on guarding the king of France? What was their role? So really, we can trace back the first tangible um, beginnings of a secret police with Cardinal Breichelieu in the 1600s, actually. Um, and he had a what we call secret services. They were a cadre of different affiliates and um, underlings, if you will, that, that basically reported to him directly. And they had three assignments on a regular basis. They are were tasked with undermining the House of Habsburg, which was a direct enemy of France at the time, suppress any plots that would usurp or go against either himself 
or the king and dismantle the Protestant organization in France, being a heavy, heavily Catholic or, um, country, Protestants were looked down upon. So those secret services and their underlings, those were their three main tasks, and they reported directly to the um, Cardinal Richelieu, and he had ears everywhere. Um, and really, ultimately, the Cardinal was more concerned with like scandal and salacious talk that would reflect poorly on himself or his affiliates. So really, a, what ended up happening is these secret agents really just became eavesdroppers and and passers and passing um they would pass notes to him saying i heard this i heard that so it's really like um um hearsay on drugs and that that's kind of what that became for him <laughs> um but his um secret services that was kind of the foundational i guess um origins of what a secret police would evolve into um and he even had a, a kind of a separate group called the Cabinet Noir, that their whole group, that whole group was just tasked with intercepting messages between French nobles and other courts of Europe. He had such dis distrust of what was occurring that this group would intercept messages um, on writers, they would read it, report back to him whether it was anything they considered inappropriate or he did. So he even had groups within groups. And that really is is a good um, a good foundation to kind of springboard into what the secret police became under Napoleon. And it's 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 great to to know that someone was so interested in what was being said about them, their affiliates, <laughs> that they've set up this whole network to to keep tabs on it. Yeah. Um, and and certainly considering the size of France at that point and the decentralized nation uh, nature of it, you know that would have been an extensive uh, secret service. So how how big was this secret service? The secret police, you know, they did a good job of keeping it secret because we still don't know the numbers <laughs> of the secret police. So what you can do is do some reasonable extrapolation based on to the disparate sizes and the lo lo locales. You have to think at least in the high hundreds, if not thousands. Potentially, as we get into the empire years, when... France has grown with territories, you you could almost extrapolate that there would have to be maybe as many as 10,000 different agents in some capacity, just because of the nature of the territory and the distances involved. But at least a high hundreds, just based on the pervasiveness of how eyes and ears were seemingly everywhere. And by the time, as we discuss soon about um, Napoleon and his police, they literally had, even Napoleon felt that eyes and ears were everywhere, even on him at all times. So it seemed, it's highly probable, the thousands at least. Yeah, and if you're having those feelings, uh, the numbers are certainly incredibly high, uh, yeah. even for even for Renaissance period uh, population yeah. numbers. <laughs> so with the, with the rise of Napoleon, obviously he wants to make some kind of uh, changes to the policing services, um, and what they can do. So what kind of changes did Napoleon make uh, upon his assumption of power? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there were a number of things early on and immediately Napoleon made. One of the first things was the professionalization of the force. He thought they were, he thought there should be a much higher standard because he wanted their image to reflect his image of professionalism, commanding, authoritarian. Ironically, one of the early requirements for policing when um, that he put into play was that for the gendarmerie, he wanted them all to be at least six foot tall. 
Now that's interesting because the average Frenchman at the time was far from six foot tall. They were far and few, but that was the aspiring standard that he wanted to have a commanding imposing force that was well-fed, well-dressed, well-disciplined, and well-armed. Those are all things that they didn't really exist until he put that into place. So he funded it. It was a huge expense for France. And that's actually something he came to uh, begrudgingly acknowledge, but he knew the worth was there that he had. Um, and they were really a paramilitary force that they were able to train and they became sometimes a source for troop conscription as well for the armies. And, and um, so he increased the in size as well. So he standardized them. He increased their size significantly. They were maybe 10,000, give or take, in some form or fashion before him spread out. He increased that to about 15,000 plus fairly quickly. And he also kind of segmented them. So he put two, two thirds mounted on horses, which made a lot of sense, right? Because if you're going to have everybody on foot, you can't get anywhere. So he made two thirds on horses so they could respond quicker and address issues and put a third on foot for more direct manpower on the ground. And then he restructured just the organization of how, how they set about policing this territory of France. He created pre prefix. Um, these prefix oversaw direct territories and prefix for all sakes and pur purposes were like many emperors of their area. And they reported directly to Napoleon himself. That was very smart because he established stability and direct control, had an appointed person in charge of that territory, then they directly answered to him. So he was able to consolidate and streamline power, kind of like to flow the chart upward, as they say. So a lot of reorganization and administration, but their professionalism, that was a huge part. And that played very well into the average citizen because they had dealt with the horror of the revolution for years. The revolution was murder, mayhem, everything was just chaos. And this is one of his commitments to the citizens of France. I will bring order and I will bring law to the land. And, and he knew that would play very well to the population. And they, in turn, would support him even more then. So by doing that, by putting a gendarmerie that was increased in size, more visible, more omnipresent, and actually stamped down brigandage, and they represented him in these well-cut uniforms and drills that the population very much said, well, he did what he said. Just like, you know, we hear that today's world, right? Politicians say one thing, they do another. Well, he knew to get the population on his side, he needs to do what he said he would do, and he did with that. And that went a long way towards building the goodwill of the French people. And it's it's fascinating to see the the effect that it had, you know, making making these services more professional, uh, building support within the uh, within the people, and streamlining um, governmental systems. You know, that that's obviously has a profound effect on the way Napoleon's able to govern. But how hard were these these changes to implement then? Uh, obviously, if you're trying to create a whole new government structure and and only choose men who are six feet plus, it's it's going to be quite difficult. With the with the fragmented nature of what existed before, the challenges were really um, a little bit haphazard in the aspect of there wasn't a consolidated effort to push back against him. So as it became obvious, he was the enlightened one of the day, and favor and the and fate favored him. That 
people quickly fell in line to know that we need to hook our horse to his cart because this is this is where things are going. But also because um, getting on the goodwill of the up up and coming first council first, like he was, and then future emperor, that allowed a lot of uh, interesting characters to kind of side with him early on, and that he was able to appoint in different territorial positions or ministry positions early on. And and as we get down into the discussion, you know, one of the most colorful ones we'll be speaking about soon. He uh, He's a unique character all by himself, but he wasn't alone. There were other ones that were very much sided with Napoleon early on and saw the value in in the structure, but also the value in the brilliance that he brought to, to France at the exact time they, they needed somebody like him to pull them out of the chaos. And, you know, it's, it's if he's easy to implement, he's obviously demonstrating that Napoleon is such a charismatic figure. Uh, and like you said, hitching your horse to him. Uh, <laughs> it probably sets you up quite nicely for the future <laughs> yes yes not nothing like a um an early version of the 401k <laughs> <laughs> now now if he's setting up this paramilitary force the the gondomere and he already has a regular policing service you know what was the relationship between these two forces then absolutely so so the, there were a couple different tiers of how policing worked at the time under napoleon um, the local police force was kind of more the administrative police force. Um, any town of about 5,000 or more people would have its own police department, if you will, and they, um, and they would be overseen by a commissar that was appointed by the Ministry of General Police in Paris. This was basically for all sakes and pur purposes, kind of like the um, the wa walking a beat officer, let's say. They're on the street kind of just maintaining the status quo when things needed when they needed more authority or support for actual arrest or just the manpower if there was like a riot they would rely on the gendarmerie to come in for that more authoritative action so it was a hand in hand but by no means were they equal status the local police were a tier under the gendarmerie always um so the local police were the everyday presence the gendarmerie were was always the icing on the cake if you will the more the muscle behind the authority of napoleon visible and final when they arrived interestingly there was actually a third component of policing that was based out of paris and they were and i speak a little bit about that later on but they were created by napoleon as a method of to watch the watchers so basically, even then, he had a third tier um, of his own cadre that only reported to him and answered to no one else that he wanted them overseeing everybody else that was a police force as well. And it's interesting that we go in full circle with how police forces are. And I really like the, the metaphor of the gendarmerie being the, the muscle for yeah. Napoleon. You know, how much control then we sit we you know, we have that third tier that reports directly to napoleon we have the gendarmerie and then underneath we have the regular police service there the bobby on the beat if you will you know how much control did napoleon exercise over the first and second tier within his rule the the ministers um particularly answered directly to napoleon he required almost daily reports from from them 
And he was so prodigious in his workload that he would literally read every report every day. And he's and there are documented instances of him seeing details of things. It, it could be there was an instance of a newspaper had a headline that could have been conceived as maybe a little bit anti-Bonaparte. He felt it was fine. He actually marked on the report, sent it back. This is fine. I mean, that's amazing to, to have that kind of level of engagement with the reports from his ministers um, that he's that engaged. So that is something that shows the diligence he put into the importance of policing in all of its aspects. Now, he's human at the end of the day, too, so you can't see everything all the time. It's impossible. But that's why he did set up what was called the Prefecture of Police out of Paris. And they, as I said, they became the watcher of the watchers. So they were also his additional eyes and ears for those kinds of things, for anything that seemed abnormal or out of the norm or maybe contradictory to Napoleon's edicts. So that was another set of eyes and ears to help him. And there was a much smaller group, but they were also to keep an eye on the ministers of police and the commissars and those other um, headline officers, if you will, of the policing throughout France itself. And, you know, you can see the similarities between Napoleon and and future great leaders, dictators, so on, like like Joseph Stalin, who poured that amount of evidence into reading these security reports. Yep. Obviously, you've just you've just mentioned Napoleon was a man. He had you know only a finite amount of time in every day to to deal with governmental issues, to deal with issues across the empire. And and within your paper, you, you mentioned that Napoleon turns control over to another man. Uh, and we've touched on him already. It's Joseph, Joseph, and I hope I'm saying his last name right, Joseph Foch. Uh, so, yeah, who was this man, and, and why was he so important to Napoleon? In my opinion, he this is one of the most interesting characters in Napoleon's life, to be honest. This is um, an interesting man that, ironically, was an ex-priest. Um, he was an ex-priest um, who basically had a who basically became discontented with priesthood and the power of the church over the lives of people in France. He was married with four, four kids. And the best quote I've read um, about, about him from a historical book was he was quoted as being pale with a cold manner, taciturn and parchment menti. So basically um, in a, <laughs> he's really described as almost ghoul-like in just his disposition, which fit perfectly into the, his political intrigues that he was involved in. He was actually a member of the J Jacobin Club, which was anti-royalist at the time. He was very much against the crown and what they did, as well as against the church itself. Um, he was ruthless beyond belief in a lot of ways. And a, a horrific example of that is in 1793, there was an uprising in Lyon, France. He was sent with troops to kind of investigate. They were rebelling against the directorate and things that were happening at the time. So he went to Lyon, France and uncovered sympathizers, um, ba basically. And what he would do, he would round them up in groups of 12, chain them together and shoot them with grape shot. And then there was usually a survivor. The survivors were then bayoneted by his troops. He 
he alone is directly responsible for at least 2,000 people executed that way in Lyon, France alone, which is pretty horrific. And that did include kids. So the reputation this man had and was feared was already established by 1793 throughout France. So that right there tells you a lot as to the nature of this person, which is ironic because then the reports would, he would go home to his kids and his wife and be absolutely fine have no issue with that. So he very much was a, uh, a, a, a man of unrelenting purpose, no matter what the consequence was. For him, the ends did justify the means every time. His entire career was about that. He would actually go on to be minister of police for France four different times, which is quite amazing. Um, he, um, he served um, from uh, 1799 to 1802. And then from 1804 to 1810, and then he had two different stints in 1815 during the 100 days and right after. But um, Fouch, Fouch, uh, um, he, he, is, uh, he always played the odds. He was always having a back door open to the next thing. So he was very much, he was very good because Napoleon never even knew the extent of the network that he had. And Napoleon actually, to some some say, Napoleon feared what he might have on him because it was discovered upon his death that, that Fouché had thousands of reports on everybody, including Napoleon, members of the royal family, other marshals of France, everybody. But one of the things that really did him in for any sympathy at the end of Napoleon's reign was he was one of the ones that signed off on Marshal Michel Ney to be executed Ney was considered by a lot of the French people to be the epitome of, of France, like the best a soldier could be, live and die by France. He gave his life up for, his, for France. So when he signed off on that execution, that really did him in, in the minds of many French people. So his uh, exile, we'll say, which we'll touch on later on, was a foregone conclusion at that point, even by the will of the French people, let alone the 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 crown at the time. And I see a lot of again, I see a lot of similarities between, you know, Fouch and the other uh, secret police leaders that you know people like Hitler and Stalin and uh, Mao Zedong all had uh, in their back pocket, being incredibly powerful people who who show no remorse for the actions. Yep. So you, you, we've touched on it very, very gently there, uh, that Napoleon didn't even know the extent of Foch's network. Now, how did Napoleon and Foch, how, how were Napoleon and Foch able to integrate this, this massive service into society? You know, that right there is interesting because these are two men actually that really couldn't stand each other <laughs> and it wasn't like a big secret at the time per se but they also knew they really needed each other for different means to an end now napoleon needed to continue to se secure his hold and control of france because that was the backbone of him being able to launch military campaigns so he needed he needed to maintain law and order for the goodwill of the pe people but also to make sure that he wasn't going to try to be usurped so he knew Foch had eyes and ears seemingly everywhere, and, and Napoleon never understood the extent, but he appreciated the result, and that was the key, was Foch could get the result when nobody else could. And, and Napoleon, as I said, never really understood the extent. He just appreciated the result, and the result was Foch was able to 
intercept many things and stop many plots that we'll speak to that would have ended Napoleon's life fairly early on and prevented him from becoming emperor even. And Foosh knew that Napoleon was the it man of the hour. And he, he recognized that. But he also always recognized, if I keep a door slightly open to the opposition, just in case. So he's always playing two sides of a coin. Uh, but he knew by using the network of eyes and ears, and he was he would pay people off. He would pay for information. I mean, they. I mean, he had barbers and butchers and newspaper people. He had people literally everywhere, and pay a little money here, a little money there. You know, I can get this person out of pr prison if you do this. Whatever he needed to do to get information, and he re record and document all this stuff. So he had basically dirt on seemingly everybody at all times so napoleon was fearful like what would he have on me so he never really he would fire him and then rehire him basically a couple times because he knew at the end of the day nobody was remotely close to the skill level and in the eyes and ears that he had everywhere he had moles everywhere if you know i think there was one quote i read that foosh had more rats than paris did of of uh so that says a lot <laughs> so it's, it's, it's quite I'd, intriguing that the possibility of the extent which i'm sure we'll never know but you can imagine but just based on that kind of uh statement by um i can't recall who it was and one of the many many things i read but that's an interesting statement that the leader of the country who would become the most powerful person on the continent in a short amount of time was fearful of what he had on him and that he had spies literally everywhere so there was so much distrust and as you said a common theme right on these men of power and these governments of great power is that who watches the watchers because there is no trust amongst them and for napoleon to even be afraid of someone uh for no no matter how long that time was really demonstrates just how powerful Foch was yeah. uh, and how pervasive and subversive that secret police that he had really Absolutely. was as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and definitely the right right thing going to people's barbers. Uh, so I think that's it. You find out a lot through a barber, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so we've uh, we've touched on the point of, of Foch having, you know, the, the ability and and the past and the know-how of, of stopping uh, plots and assassination attempts on Napoleon, Napoleon's government and Napoleon's life. Um, you know, how, how was he able to uncover these? And, and, and have you got a few examples? Yeah, absolutely. So according to some historians, um, they, they think somewhere between 20 and 30 assassination attempts had occurred at one point or another on Napoleon directly and or his family directly. And there are probably, there are a number of examples of probably the most well-known ones. Um, and it really started early on, which tells you a lot of the pushback against Napoleon's rise to power, if you will. And a lot of the majority of those really occurred in 1800, that first, that year when he's really in prominence and he's really rising to his high levels of fame, if you will, or infamy to others, it really comes to play um, early on. So in fall of 1800, there was just an early plot by a coordinated group. I think it was about 17 men. They were just going to basically just surround him and kill him and shoot him. So 
Foch's men uncovered that plot arrested all 17 of those men early on. Within a month, there were more plots. There were two uh, plots within October alone. One was uh, Napoleon was a frequent um, guest of the opera in Paris. So he'd go to the opera a lot. Now, that was well known. He would be visible going to, to and from the opera. So that became a good point to try to take out Napoleon. So there was a plot to stab him when he would leave the opera. Um, there was another plot this, that by a group of about 12 that were going to go on a bridge. When his carriage was going underneath, they were going to throw hand grenades on his carriage and blow him up. So those are two more groups within October alone that Fuchs' spies relayed, and they were able to capture those people. The most famous incident is called the Infernal Machine Plot. That was later in December of 1800. And that's a, another instance where Napoleon, Josephine, and some other high-ranking officials were taking carriages. They were going to go in separate carriages to the opera again. And um, a plot, um, a coordinated group of men had uh, used a barrel and made ba basically a barrel bomb. That when Napoleon came close by where the barrel bomb was, it would blow up and kill him. Um, unfortunately for them, and good for him, he missed it by a few seconds. And when it did blow up, it damn it blew out windows and it killed somewhere between five and 15 people just on the street. So it was very powerful. Um, that was that was the closest most I, I would say the closest he ever came and that really shook him up to the point where he really appreciated even more the the network than that was uncovered after that and all those men were executed of course but um but that came close I mean so what Fouché was able to do to track down all those men now we also know some of them might not have actually been involved but Close enough <laughs> for Fouché. So, uh, but uh, that was the Infernal Machine plot was definitely one that got very close to taking him out at the end of 1800. And that would have changed the course, obviously, of history if it would have. Just a few seconds changed everything. And it's really demonstrating not only how good Foch was in his forces were, but the importance of it, as you just said, that Napoleon realised the importance of it to him. Um, because if you can safeguard your own life and your family's life by trusting someone, why wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've we've mentioned as well as as France grew and Napoleon went on his imperialistic conquests. Um, you know the Napoleonic values need to be transported and exported to these new areas. You know how important was the secret police to shut down distance in these areas and to project these Napoleonic values? They were critical to Napoleonic values, as you say, but also his projection of power um, because the secret police could could overtly gather information about dissidents, guerrilla activity, um, plots, that, and then shut them down ahead of time, which would instill, honestly, a sense of fear in those plotters. So if the plotters and potential plotters weren't sure who was a spy, they were less apt to do it, and they were more apt to be forced then to go along with Napoleon and his uh, his edicts and his his approach, um, as opposed to taking the chance that hey, I could be talking to somebody that could actually be a spy for Napoleon, and then I'm going to get hung or shot. Maybe it's not worth that after all. So just that potential was enough to so suppress a lot 
And then when you add in the gendarmerie as the as the the visible presence as they took over more territory and expanded French control, gendarmerie presence was critical because they became the face of Napoleon, if you will. They became the enforcers of of the Napoleonic edicts, while the secret police became the eyes and ears of what was being said, and then they could report back, and then the appropriate actions could be taken. And that could be things like suppressing newspapers. That was a huge part of controlling the narrative, which, as you know, in the political sense, is a huge thing, right? So what's interesting is Fouche himself was responsible for basically censoring 80% of the papers in France himself. As an example, he required every newspaper editor to send him the copy of the next day's paper first so he could review it and he would make changes and say, wrong, I need it to look like this. And that's pretty amazing. And, and they would extend that into new territories as well to make sure it fit within the narrative they wanted to project for their new acquisitions, their new territories. Um, so that they were more in line with the Napoleonic values. So that control was over very much the, the physical control, but also the, the, the narrative itself, the domestic control. You know, the gendarmerie and a lot were also a positive in that they were the, they were the control mechanism for outlawlessness. A lot of these territories actually didn't have a good mechanism under their old regimes. So that became a positive for a number of them that actually liked that aspect of it. So it was kind of a catch-22. It's like they maybe didn't like they were being conquered, but they liked the stability that the gendarmerie pro provided. But they also knew that the secret police were somewhere around making sure that everything stayed pretty status quo. And if it didn't, somebody was likely going to hear about it. And, and for the people of these places that have just recently been conquered to to find value in essentially an imperialist body, an institution, really shows just how important these forces were, uh, not only to Napoleon, but to France and its imperialism as well. Now, you know, Napoleon, we, we know he doesn't have a great ending. Uh, <laughs> and there are a couple of stories um, after its first ending. But what happens to the gendarmerie, the secret police, Foch, and uh, after Napoleon? Sure, absolutely. So there's a couple different things that occur. So Foch himself has, he tries to endear himself to the return mo monarchy, but basically they're not really too thrilled with him because while at the end of Napoleon's reign, there was amnesty granted to pretty much everybody that fought with Napoleon, but there were a couple of exceptions. And one of the key exceptions was, is if you were part of his court or part of his entourage of Napoleon's and you voted to execute the Bourbon King early on when Napoleon overthrew. Well, bad for Foch, he was one of those that voted to execute the Bour Bourbon King. So he was exempt from that um, um, amnesty. So basically, even though they kept him around for about a year, 1816, they just couldn't abide by, and I mean they as in the Bourbon aristocracy, they couldn't abide by having him around still, knowing he was part of the ones that signed on for basically their execution years ago. So basically, he was exiled. He was exiled to Italy, 
where uh, he would stay till about 1820 when he died. Um, and supposedly right before he died, his wife was still with him and who wanted to return to France, but they couldn't because of his exile. He basically was quoted as saying one of the last things he told, told his wife, now you can return to France because he knew it was basically his fault that they couldn't, they were exiled to Italy. Now, the intelligence apparatus, though, that Foch guided and molded and utilized all those years, it stuck around. The gendarmerie itself was probably the best surviving example of coming out of Napoleon's time and still working its way forward in history. The intelligence part of it, though, kind of fell, fell apart. Um, the intelligence gag gathering that Foch was able to do with his eyes and ears, that just either disintegrated or went into disarray and really didn't exist in a formal way until about 1870 or so. Kind of France kind of reinvigorated the intelligence aspect, at least, of what the secret police could do. And they were more interested in gathering intelligence on enemy nations like Pr Prussia and all those others. So really, it just kind of, the intelligence aspect, the secret police kind of floundered after the end of Napoleon. And the gendarmerie, though, continued on, and they're there to this day, obviously. And they actually became the examples to the other countries of Europe of how to effectively police territory and have a viable presence there. And for it show it just shows how vital Foch was that everything fell apart after yeah. after his exile and you know maybe you know that Napoleon's success wouldn't have been so or we touched on attempts to his life, but maybe it wouldn't have been so successful without someone like him within yeah. that that government and that entourage. Absolutely, absolutely. So yes, he was a a wicked, some would say evil character yeah. that history is full of. But, you know, he he was ironically the right man at the right time for Napoleon as well. He really was, because otherwise Napoleon's life likely would have ended in 1800. And, you know, it's it's interesting how history hinges on these <laughs> on these characters. Now, there's yep. a final fun question for you, Michael, <laughs> <laughs> as we do for all our guests here on the History of Jackson podcast. You are currently writing a book with pen and sword about England's rise, becoming a global superpower. But I want to ask you what your three favorite things about England. I know that you have visited here before, so I just wanted yes. to know. <laughs> Absolutely. Love England. Um, dear to my heart. And my wife and I were just speaking the other day. We have to go back again soon. Um, so the three things I would say. The first one is history is literally everywhere in England. Like you, you can't put a foot down on any stone in England and not have some kind of history occur. For me, that's just a magical thing to walk down and be surrounded by history. Roman days, Celts, all the different cultures that were there and have been there. It's just magical. And I think that's great. I love that. Um, the second part is, um, I call it an ancestral sense of comfortability. Every time I'm there, I just feel like it's another home. I feel so comfortable everywhere. I feel like that... Um, that I'm actually back home in a lot of ways. So for me, it's extremely comfortable. It's relaxing. It's just great to be in the environment. And then the third, there's no better fish and chips <laughs> anywhere than right there where it's supposed to be at. And I've had them a lot of places and it never beats being right there with a pint, fish and chips. It's a great time. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I think there. I think there are three great things. Obviously, I have comfortability here anyway, but I think there are three great 
uh, three great features that you love there. Uh, particularly, you know, in the city that cities that I live in, you know, yep. down the road there's an ancient Roman fortress, right into roundabouts that were built within the Thatcher era. Um, uh, so you know that 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 breadth there is, I think you've captured brilliantly, and you know, I think fish and chips are one of the best meals that we've ever we've ever had here. So. <laughs> yep, and it's it's only done right right there, and that's yeah. I tell everybody. It's like people ask me here, I go, it's fine, but you have to go right there where it's supposed to be to get the prop proper prop proper way to have it, and it's yeah. served the right way, and it's the best. <laughs> Now, our, our readers are also going to want to go away and, and learn more about Napoleon, the Condomir, Foch, the secret police. Where can they go away uh, and read and listen to things to learn more about it? Sure. Um, a great online resource for all things Napoleon is Napoleon Org. Um, it's online. They have a fantastic depository of so much related to Napoleon and Foch and all aspects of it. So that's a great online source. I would recommend the um, um, old the older book on Foch called Foch the Man Feared the Man Napoleon Feared. That's by Nils Forso. That is an older book, and I think the entire book is actually online, free to view, and it's fantastic. They really go into a lot of details about Foch and how his approach to everything, and that's a really great book to really understand how we went about things as a person. So it's an excellent source. And a third recommendation would be by historian Michael Browers, B-R-O-E-R-S. He did a number of great articles on Napoleon and his police specifically. And a lot of those are available online. He did them for ma magazines, History Today, and Crime History and Societies. And a lot of those can be found online as well. But Michael Browers did some great work on uh the gendarmerie the secret police and how it all affected Napoleonic society as a whole and and our listeners are also going to want to to learn more from you uh, and your article that's been the basis of this interview so where can our listeners learn more or find out more from you connect with you and learn uh from your articles well my best source is LinkedIn.com is where I um, I keep all my information up to date. I am very um, engaged on that platform, so you can just search my name. You'll easily find me there. My contact information is there. I also do a military history post of some sort just about every week, so I try to find something unique, maybe something that either I haven't learned or didn't know, know about, and I try to get something out every week to keep everybody engaged and for me that's a lot of fun because i like to always learn and dig in so every week that's a challenge for me find something i didn't know and put it out there but that's the best way i have all the links to everything i have currently out um articles posts and everything that's the best way and i will i will i will say some of these military posts that michael puts up every week i, I find fascinating um <laughs> so i'm sure you guys will as well and i'll make sure the link to your LinkedIn is in the description below for everyone to go and connect with you. Excellent. Well, thank, you. Yeah, thank you very much for coming on, Michael. I really appreciate it. Excellent. I had a great, great time. Thank you.